Hello and welcome to the Back Bay Life Science Report, the monthly podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. Today we're going to be discussing challenges and best practices for successful sell-side licensing, partnering, and M&A. I'm really delighted to be joined by two of my partners today, Greg Benning, Managing Director and Head of Investment Banking at Back Bay, and Steve Galdi, who's Managing Director in our Strategic Consulting Group, but really intersects extensively with our investment banking team on the integrated platform. So before we launch into the podcast, I'm going to ask Steve and Greg to introduce themselves respectively. And Steve, let's start with you. Just give us a little background and we'll set the context for why we're talking about what we're talking about today. Thanks a lot and happy to join. Um, so Stephen Galdi, I'm a managing director with the firm, um, have been with the firm since we've began. So uh, and work across, as Jonathan said, both the strategy consulting and the investment banking side, um, you know, 12 years with Back Bay, But prior to that, a number of years in drug discovery. Uh, a number of years as a, an equity analyst covering mid-cap and large-cap companies um, and uh, enjoyed my time with Backbay since joining them at the beginning. Terrific. And Greg, since you and I have been interrupting each other for 20 years, I'm going to actually just introduce you as my partner for a long time and try not to interrupt as you introduce yourself. <laughs> okay. Well, um, hello, everybody that's listening. Welcome to the podcast. And, and, and between the three of us, you're going to get a real sense for what it's like in a uh, Back Bay brainstorming meeting. Terrific. Thanks, Greg. So really what we thought we'd cover today is the challenge inherent in any type of sell-side assignment, but specifically in licensing, partnering, and M&A, whether it's biotech or medtech or biopharma. And we certainly work across the spectrum of buy and sell side across those sectors. There are a lot of preparation issues. And I think probably our mantra is that if you go in ready to control the debate, you win. If you go in unprepared, you don't win as well. And you might not win at all. But there's a lot of issues relative to how the markets are doing, the macroeconomic and exogenous factors, understanding the buyer universe, Understanding the relative value of whether you're giving up a lead asset or a secondary asset in a licensing or partnering deal, or whether that actually migrates over to whole company M&A. And not least among this is really gaining alignment among all the stakeholders, management, board, investors, for the timing and the value of the, uh, of the event itself, your expectations around that. So Steve, I want to ask the first question of you. Um, given those areas, um, where have you found in your counseling of companies now for many years where deal preparation is most essential and also by extension, where is it most overlooked? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I think, you know, one of the you know incredible benefits we have just based on the integrated platform is, you know, we are often working with the companies for, you know, sometimes months and years prior to getting into the transactional setting. So, you know, we're able to build up a really good understanding of the company and, you know, what the sort of overall goals, um, you know, of the, the transaction are. But, you know, when we are, you know, coming to a transaction, maybe without all that, that history, um, what it is really important as sort of you know previously highlighted is really trying to get an understanding of you know what is really the goal of of the transaction what is you know what is the alignment between management board what is the expectation on exit really what is the the 
the, the overall goal. And with that in mind, you can then begin to craft the story and begin to figure out really how to do the, the positioning. Um, and, you know, again, one of the benefits of the integrated platform is when we take on a transaction, we deploy the consulting side of the group really to do diligence on the asset as though we're doing it from the other side. So when, you know, you begin that way, you, you know, begin to see it from the other side. What are the issues that are going to be most problematic for them? What are the issues that are going to, you know, potentially be the red flags? Um, and I think it's really, really important to understand what those are in advance. Ideally, you want to be able to address them up front. You want to be able to have solutions for them up front. And most of all, you don't want to be caught off guard by them, right? So in the, even the worst case scenario, you want to at least have an answer in the back pocket for what you know is an awkward question that's coming. Um, so, you know, from, from our point of view, that kind of preparation and, and really just trying to understand the asset, the structure of the company, the needs and wants of management and board, and getting all that done up front, and then figuring out where you need to sort of build out on the story. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you to zero in on one thing. And Greg, I'm going to also ask you to chime in on this just from your perspective of managing these processes. And then we're going to go to some of the specific process issues as well. But Steve, if I were to, you know, cover competitive intelligence, technology position, IP, regulatory strategies, etc. I want to point out something that in the decades that I've been doing this, I always find to be one of the biggest mistakes that can get made. And especially when you're dealing with venture-backed companies, regardless of how big the Series A's are these days versus 10 years ago, there's still a relative limit to what you can do. You still have to work within funding. You still have to work within budget. And I think there's often a real disconnect between the indication choice of a venture-backed company or even an emerging public company and that which pharma in the long run really might want to own. Yep. And I think the mistake is made, but I'd ask you to comment on this. The mistake is made that let's go for the biggest indication we can. Let's go for the big grab of a big market versus actually really being able to prove that what you've got as a platform is valuable. So I'm going to ask you to comment on that comment. And then Greg, I'd love you to comment on it also from the perspective of as you're positioning an asset for sale or for licensing or for partnering into a much bigger company, does that smaller indication really impact you? But Steve, let's start with you in terms of that type of analysis and preparation. Yeah, I mean, we we will often spend a long time, you know, particularly in the buildup with a company is figuring out, you know, what is the indication? What is the path you're taking forward? You know, in many cases these days, there is a recognition that, you know, maybe a smaller indication or a rare indication might be something that you can prove the concept and you know there is often a belief that if you prove it there you know the large indication will follow well you know increasingly those two pathways are are separate so um you know being able to you have to be very clear and upfront about what you're going after so if it's a big indication that you are going after then yes you need to be able to show the path that you have taken to get to that you know inflection point typically earlier in the process because in the big indications you know the amount of money in, that is required means that the smaller companies are, you know are looking to do deals at the earlier stage but that doesn't de-risk 
it necessarily from the big company point of view. So I think a lot of the issues that the small companies face is that they don't think beyond how this gets developed once it's left them, right? So, you know, in the pitch decks, it'll be, we'll take it to proof of concept and then we'll partner it. Well, that's all well and good, but, you know, when someone's doing diligence on the other side, they really need to understand what is still to come, right? So very often the smaller companies will stop at where they think they are no longer involved. But if you're going to tell the story, you have to be able to tell it all the way through to the market. So having an understanding of what that, you know, phase two or phase three program is going to look like, really understanding sequencing of additional indications where that could be done. Um, having the full plan, if not, you know, in great detail, at least you have to be able to articulate how you would take it forward your, you know, yourself and recognize that, you know, in the cases where it's a bigger player that is is looking at you, they may do it differently. They may have their own ways of, of sort of approaching it, but they're going to want to know that you've at least thought about how it would go forward on its own. Terrific. So that is the control the debate yep. mantra of exactly. Back Bay Life Science Advisors. But Greg, let's turn that over to you from a from a structural perspective, you've got the lead indication, either the big one or a you know small proof of principle one that you've got to work with. You've got an undefined or partially defined next stage regulatory process, and you've got adjacencies or other indications where this can go forward. What do you find the responses in terms of how you can drive value for that um, in a specific monetary economic sense and what you need to fill in and how that impacts deal structure? I guess it's all about options at the end of the day. Yeah, well, that that and and, and considering the audience, because um, I I've, I'm always open to, to 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 new things. But this has been the work at Back Bay has had, you know, um, um, occasional surprises where you go in with an asset um, that's been focused um, by the by the company and by the board um, um, exclusively in 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 one area, and then the counterparty. Um, as you're starting to get into, um, you know, valuation and structuring decisions is starting to push back. And, and what you find out is that their interest is taking it in an entirely different direction. And this is a one, just as a for instance, one that we worked on a few years ago that, that had a primary focus. It was an epigenetic asset, preclinical, focusing in oncology. And we got into some deal discussions with a counterparty. And as we were pressing on the, on the, on the clinical milestones, we're running into some 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 resistance and made the suggestion that maybe they should just flip it to an M and A transaction, and they did, and and it was like, well, that worked out well. Um, but then, you know, what what wound up happening was they took it into infectious disease. So um, it was, you know, quite a quite a surprise to find that. I mean, you know, things we were working on now, big hard indications. We're finding people that are interested in taking good phase one data and and channeling that into maybe a rare proof of concept study. Um, we're finding um, 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 big hard indications with good phase one data where, you know, the, the counterparty may be interested in some of the, 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 the more, um, um, more recent backup compounds that are coming because they've got longer exclusivity. So I think, I think uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff where you need, to, um, um, you need to really understand what's going on on the other side. And... Um, and they may be looking at it very differently than, than, than the way, you know, you do. 
So that's that's a great segue to something that I very much want to discuss. And you know, I, I spend some of my time as a as an entrepreneur. I've started a number of companies and um, also you know work um, meaningfully in an investment fund. And we're often approached by um, agents, intermediaries, investment bankers as, as our companies are getting sold, or as I've you know as I've seen in companies that I've started and um, you know have are on the exit trajectory that. The people, the contacts are so important inside of the inside of those that will buy the companies, the acquirers. The contacts are often in corp dev um, or in biz dev, and they aren't necessarily where some of the critical decisions are. And Greg, I know that you've always been a champion of identifying not only the right buyer, but also knowing the champion within the organization. And I, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about you know, R&D versus commercial. Who owns, who owns the P&L? Who's going to own the risk for it? And how do you ferret that out as you're launching a transaction and as you really need to get to the meat of who's going to be making the decision and who's going to be paying for this at the end of the day? Well, we can, we can take that back into, you know, the, the, the prior comments that I made, but I think it also has something to do with the size of the organization that's across the table from you. I mean, if you're looking at a... Um, you know, a, a you know a larger organization um, that um, is 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 thinking about you know um, target market sizes and indications that are either square in their focus areas, incremental value add um, um, clinically to their focus, or something that they're trying to drop into you know a um, a revenue line say in twenty twenty five. Um, you know, if, it, if it's, if you, as you progress from phase one to phase three, you know, there's this spot in the middle that can get a little bit tricky where, you know, R&D may be really enthusiastic about it up to, up to, up to a certain point. But beyond that, your champion is coming from the commercial side. Um, you know, conversely, at a, um, um, at a, at a, you know, at a large biotech or a medium-sized biotech, um, um, you know, you could have it. Um, coming, you know, from either of those sides. So I think I think to some degree, you know, the stage and size of counterparty, um, you know, drive part of that answer. Yep, um, I agree. I think at the end of the day, we're going to have to say that you really need, if as Steve is arguing, you need the continuity from the development all the way through to the market. Then you really need to be able to position everything so that all of those decision makers on an investment committee, on an acquisition committee, at the board level, really understand the um, the relative value that it will mean to them, whether it's a year from now or three years from now. But Steve, that actually raises another issue that I think is important. Greg Greg talked about converting a licensing or a partnering deal into a whole company M and A deal, and that's terrific when that can happen. And there are a number of different ways, I think, where you can precipitate that. But the other challenge on the front end of that entire process is for companies to think about whether they really want to partner that front, that lead asset, where a lot of their value is construed, and then use those proceeds to help develop the back end, or whether they're better off using the back end of their pipeline to try to gain some non-dilutive funding, even though all funding is ultimately dilutive, and then really lead themselves with what's going to create the most value near term. As you, as you go about those analyses and as you counsel companies, it's obviously going to be different for everyone. What are the types of things you think about in terms of that prioritization? 
Um, yeah, no, particularly for a, a, a licensing deal, um, you know, a lot of the discussion ultimately comes down to who's going to be responsible for what and when, right? So, um, you know, if even if it's your lead asset, and yes, a lot of your value is is tied up in that, there are a lot of structures where, you know, companies can potentially take on the early part of the work, right? So, if you're a preclinical company and you know you're you're looking at at sort of moving assets into the clinic, um, you know maybe being able to do some of that early clinical work, you know often companies are using that to build their capabilities, um, you know establish themselves, and at the same time, the uh, you know counterparties aren't taking on the risk and they're able to leverage that you know deep reservoir of knowledge that is coming with the the asset. Versus, you know, a preclinical asset or an early stage asset that you're kind of just throwing over the fence and taking the cash and going back to the well. So, you know, in, in many cases, it's what how can you structure a deal such that both sides get something from it? Right. And, you know, in those sorts of cases, it it's, you know, in a lot of the things that we've worked on, it's it's really come down to when is the handover point? And is there a handover point that de-risks it for the the acquirer, but also gives the early stage company something else, right? And not just the cash. Um, so in those sort of situations, you know, having being able to move your lead asset further along, knowing that there's an exit for it, but gaining those capabilities means that you are in a better position to be able to move. The next stage of assets through to a, a higher uh, valuation point or inflection point. So it, it really does kind of depend. Um, you know, I think there's there are instances where both work, right? Partnering the lead, getting something out of it can be beneficial for both. But if you know a lot of the a lot of the the sort of newer platforms that we've been looking at, um, you know, it depends where you're getting your benefit from, right? It, with a lot of the newer technologies, it's a little more about the froth than the promise of the technology. When those technologies make it into the clinic and they come up against the hard truth of clinical development, you know, that's when you start to see them, uh, you know, face a few problems. So in some cases, it may be good to partner off the lead asset and focus on the early stage development because that's where a lot of the the interest lies or you can hold on to it and hold on to it maybe a little bit longer and work with the other company in a collaborative sort of way to be able to you know build up your capabilities if that makes sense and we've had experience you know partnering the lead partnering the the, the second or third indication partnering some of the early stage stuff I mean, it all again. I just, I just kind of come back to the whole thing about you know where's the interest coming from on the other side, and can you put something together that's enabling for the rest of the organization, or you know, it gives you gives you a, a sense that you're going to actually yeah, realize yeah. full value in a single deal. Oh no, I was just going to say. I, I mean, I think you know the the idea for for a lot of companies going into that sort of structured transaction is you know this is what we're selling, and we're going to have 25 buyers for it, what you actually have are 25 different value propositions because each one of them views the asset differently. And it's not until you get into the mix of it 
that you really have to start figuring out for each counterparty how best to position the asset. Thanks. I'd also offer up, I mean, you know, capital has been so available, especially in the biotech sector for the last number of years. I still believe that there needs to be absolutely detailed preparation, understanding the relative value of the relative assets, the relative indications, and really understanding where you have the highest likelihood of being able to get returns. And although I think even in a capital-rich environment, that's extremely helpful because you really get to choose among the different options available to you as a company, and that can be IPO ability and financing through the public markets. It can be large MES rounds prior to that. It can be acquisition. It can be licensing and partnering. If you haven't thoroughly examined that in advance of transactional activity, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. And although none of us can predict when a market correction can come, what we can all predict is that market corrections do come. And if capital sources become scarcer, those types of analytics really become critical. So Greg, I'm going to ask you to close out the podcast, although everybody gets a concluding remark, with the pessimistic deal end game, where do things break down? What, sh- what should everyone always be looking for? Because as I l- I've learned many interesting things from you as I transitioned from academic medicine to this side of the world, but among them was you got to break it to make it on occasion, and that inevitably means the deal end game. So talk to me a little bit about whether it's board alignment, valuation, structural issues, where those challenges are where you always see uh, something that you've got to overcome. Yeah, well, that whole break it to make it thing is a pretty stressful dynamic um, when you're saying to a client um, or you're having a discussion um, openly about, okay, do we have to walk away to get to find out what the other side's real, real um, negotiating um, limits are? Um, I think the biggest thing right now, um, um, you know, sitting here at the end of 2021 is just how flat out busy everybody is. And um, I think when you when you when you when you're and we'll look at this either in terms of trying to get things done at the end of this year by the end of this year or trying to launch new things into what traditionally would be a time of year that people are starting to entertain new ideas. People are crazy busy right now, and that 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 goes from the venture funds looking at new ideas to um, um, boards, um, C suites, um, business development people at at at, at companies um, to um, um, transaction council. Um, everybody is just crazy busy. So I think, I think you have to be very careful in terms of when you are raising issues to make sure that they are real issues, that the, that the, the objections are being framed in a constructive way, articulate what you're looking for in terms of a comeback, and articulate when you're going to be getting in back in touch with people. Because I think all of those things in terms of being imprecise in your communications um, being imprecise in terms of expectations and being impre- imprecise in terms of feedback, when things are this busy, um, all have the the chance of uh, of killing something. So I, 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 you know, just just temporarily, that's 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 that. Those are the biggest things on 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 my list right now. Just making sure communication is really well structured. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let that be your your concluding remark as well. And Steve, turn it over to you for your concluding remark in terms of the end of 2021 council you'd give. Yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, as, as the year closes out, as Greg said, you know, it, everyone is, is flat out. Um, But, you know, it's clear that 
this busy time is going to continue into the new year. Um, and, you know, I think what we're seeing is that there are there are still plenty of options for folks. You know, when when we are going out at this point, we are often you know looking at not just a transaction, but you know the company is almost inevitably dual tracking some kind of financing or looking at an IPO. Um, and you know those kinds of of options are great, um, but I think we're in flush times at the moment, right? So, you know, certainly leverage all those sort of those options at the moment. But, you know, to your earlier point, these sorts of things can go away pretty quickly. Um, and you think you just have to be ready to to tap dance a little bit, you know, as, as you know, the sort of situation changes. Thank you. And uh, my two mantras, which I invoke all the time, one is control the debate, which has been, I think, present throughout this entire discussion today. And the other is, of course, better is the enemy of good. And as flush as we are with capital and as busy as everybody is, sometimes um, recognizing what will advance your cause in the near term really advances the cause in the, in the long term. And those types of analytics and prioritization remain critical. So, Steve, and I forgot to mention at the beginning of this that you now head up our Back Bay Canadian office based in the Mars Center in Toronto. That's right, eh? So I think this is your first podcast from there. It is, from the Great White North. Uh, It is, and we can still hear the Canadian accent there, so it's okay. And Greg, um, you're you're still Boston-based, which is a good thing to be. But thank you both for joining us, and to all listeners, thanks so much for joining the Back Bay Life Science Report. And we'll be back again with something new and very soon. But in the meantime, best wishes to everybody listening. It's been a great 2022.